thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm delighted to have you with me as today we begin to look at one of my favorite writings or pieces about law that I think I've ever read. It's a law review article published in 1979 in the Duke Law Journals, uh, part of a lecture that was given there by Yale law professor Arthur Leff, L-E-F-F. You can find his uh, article online if you would like to, and I'll be referring to it generously today and probably next week. But it is such a brilliant and honest assessment of the state of law in our world today, Um, and, and I commend it highly to you. I hope that today's podcast and next week's you will find worth sharing with your friends to help them understand the environment that we're in juridically and in a matter of jurisprudence and why most of the time the arguments being advanced by Christians will not prove successful or at least successful in the long run. If you want to know why everything seems crazy, why up seems down and down seems up, when why boys think they're girls and girls think they're boys and school boards think that uh, your children are their children, well, you need to listen to today's episode and next week's. To introduce Professor Leff's article, I want to begin with a quote from another article by Philip Johnson. Uh, Philip Johnson is a law professor, passed away recently. I had the blessing of getting to know him a little bit. Uh, He might be familiar to you as the person who wrote Darwin on Trial, Reason in the Balance. He was one of the instigators of what is now called the intelligent design movement, trying to poke holes in the theory of Darwinian evolution. And he wrote the following about Leff's article, and he began it this way. Modernism is the condition that begins when humans understand that God is really dead and that they, therefore, have to decide all the big questions for themselves. Now, we're going to come back to that statement and apply it in the context of the Dobbs oral argument and the Dobbs decision. If you're not familiar with that decision, it's the case that reversed Roe versus Wade. But for today's purposes, I want to continue with what he then said as his introduction to his analysis of Leff's article. Modernism at times produces an exhilarating sense of liberation. We can do whatever we like because there's no unimpeachable authority to prevent us. Modernism at other times is downright scary. How can we persuade other people that what they want to do to us is barred by some unchallengeable 
moral absolute. Think of the situation involving schools. How do we convince the school that you should not put certain material in the children's library or the public library, put certain materials in those libraries, or teach certain things to our children in the public schools, or force us to to create things that we don't want to create? Thankfully, that was protected recently by the United States Supreme Court under the guise of speech. But how do we convince people that they should not be able to force us to do things that we think are wrong? Johnson said, Yale law professor Arthur Left expressed the bewilderment of an agnostic culture that yearns for enduring values in a brilliant lecture delivered at Duke University in 1979. Let me read to you now the opening paragraph of Left's article, and then I'm going to comment He begins his article this way. I want to believe, and so do you, in a complete, transcendent, and eminent set of propositions about right and wrong, findable rules that authoritatively and unambiguously direct us how to live righteously. I also want to believe, and so do you, in no such thing but rather that we're wholly free, not only to choose for ourselves what we ought to do, but to decide for ourselves individually and as a species what we ought to be. What we want, heaven help us, is simultaneously to be perfectly ruled and perfectly free. That is, at the same time, to discover the right and the good and to create it. He then goes on to say this, that his central thesis in the article is that, quote, in much that is mysterious about much that's written about law today is understandable only in the context of this tension between the ideas of found law and made law, a tension particularly evident in the growing though desperately resisted awareness that there may be, in fact, nothing to be found, that whenever we set out to find the law, we are able to locate nothing more attractive or more final than ourselves. So notice what Leff is considering, the difference between findable law in a God-created cosmos a God-created and God-normed cosmos, I should say, and a cosmos that's like the introduction of that television show I used to watch from time to time, Whose Line Is It Anyway?, where they said, the rules are made up and the points don't matter. In other words, alternatively, a cosmos in which we make up all the laws, except those that even a modernist would acknowledge, namely, laws devoid of any ethical meaning that governs the existence and manipulation of matter and energy. We're just stuff, and we can manipulate it however we are able for any purpose that we deem good, independent of anything outside of ourselves. So notice, let's go back to what Left said in his first sentence. What he says we want 
notice this, is a complete, transcendent, and imminent set of propositions about right and wrong. Now, I find that very interesting because he uses the word transcendent, meaning outside of ourselves, not higher than ourselves, really, but outside of ourselves. Yet, it must be imminent such that it is communicable to us. Now, there is only one existence being a proposition, however you want to word it, that we can say is both transcendent and imminent, and that is the God described on the pages of Scripture. He is both transcendent and imminent. He's not like the God of deism out there, and so disconnected from us, nor is he the God of pantheism that is, is only imminent in us and not transcendent and outside of ourselves. The only person who can provide this set of propositions about right and wrong is the God of the Bible. And Left goes on, ultimately, to concede that very point. But notice what else Leff said that he wanted. He wanted a set of propositions that are complete and unambiguously direct us how to live righteously. In other words, a biblical conception of law, like we have talked about in past episodes, where we are given certain propositions and then we must develop a maturity and a wisdom and a prudence to judge them. Remember we talked about the verse in Proverbs 26 that says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him, and answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. You see, what Leff is saying is we really do want a complete set of rules. Just tell me what to do. And you know what? I grew up in a Christianity that was much like that. Just give me the rule. Do I smoke? Do I not smoke? Do I drink? Do I not drink? Do I dance? Do I not dance? Rather than trying to discern what is right in view of how God has made us and the purpose for which we're made and our end, just give me the rule right? And, and too often, I think today, that's how Christianity is approached by many Christians, by many pastors even. And that's how it's perceived by many in the world today, which, which is, is why in the Creative 303 case, and the court said you can't compel um, the, the wedding designer of websites to, to design same-sex marriage websites, they called it a license to discriminate because all they see Christianity is, is as a set of rules. And who is to say one set of rules is better than another? Okay, so we have to have something that is complete and unambiguous in every area of our law. And left concludes we don't have that. In fact, he asserts, as noted, that we really don't want that because we want to be autonomous. So in essence, Leff says what he's asking is under what circumstances, other than in a God-ordered cosmos 
normed by laws of God governing even humans and human interactions, can the will of anyone or any group of people withstand the question, says who? Why? Who said I should not have sex with another man? Who said that I should be monogamous in my relationship? Who said I couldn't change my gender? Who said I shouldn't read certain books? Or who said I shouldn't put certain books in the children's library? So here's Left's conclusion, and it's very important. Put briefly, if the law is not a brooding omnipresence in the sky... And that phrase is important. He quotes it because it's the pejorative description of law and common law made by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, whom we have spoken about. And so Leff is saying, if the law is not a brooding omnipresence in the sky, then it can be only one place in us. If we are trying to find a substitute final evaluator, it must be one of us, some of us, all of us. But it cannot be anything else. The result of that realization is what might be called an exhilarated vertigo, a simultaneous combination of an exultant, we're free of God, and a despairing, oh God, we're free. Now, let me tell you where this works its way into the real world of politics. Before I left the legislature in 2006, I was pushing an amendment to the state constitution that would have overturned a decision by our state Supreme Court that abortion was a fundamental right under our state constitution. And we're going to pass a provision that said there's nothing in the Constitution that pertains to the issue of abortion or requires the funding of an abortion. And, and, and that amendment finally passed through the legislature, finally got on the ballot, finally was adopted. And uh, since then, praise God, West Virginia and Louisiana and um, Alabama have also passed those amendments. And our states are not now having to worry about uh, lawsuits being brought by pro-abortionists arguing that uh, the state constitution provides for abortion. We've, we've settled that issue in our constitution. But during the course of that debate, as I was leaving the legislature, I was on a television radio call-in show uh, with the head of the ACLU here, the person who was then the head of it. And, and the lady who headed the organization kept talking about a right to reproductive health care. And I kept insisting in the on-air interview to say, well, first we have to determine what it is we're aborting, what is involved in the abortion procedure to determine whether there is a right to this form of health care. Now, she obviously never wanted to answer the question, but I kept insisting we have to define what is being aborted, what is being removed in the parking lot following the show, uh, she was very gracious, said, you know, I'm going to miss having you in the legislature. You at least make honest debates. And, 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 and I said, well, Hetty, would you not answer my question? She said, well, I'm not sure I really understood it. And, and the sum of it is this, that I, I said to her, 
Hedy, the Constitution allows the people of Tennessee to amend it by the very process that I am lawfully using. So my question to you is, if you have a right to abortion, where is it to be found such that I should say I'm under a duty, a moral duty, not to use this amendment process to to say there's not such a right in our state constitution. Where does that right come from? And you can't say it comes in the constitution because the constitution gives me the right to amend it. So why am I morally obligated not to amend the constitution in the way I'm seeking to do? And she said, ultimately, I, I don't think I really understand your question. And maybe she didn't. I don't know. But I said, here's the point. And I actually quoted this law review article, referenced it to her. I said, the point is, if there is not a God outside of us who decides who we are and what we're for and, and what we can and cannot do, then the law must be found in one of us or some of us or all of us. And because your organization expressly excludes the possibility that the answer to the question is found in God, then under our form of government, it's found in whoever can get the most amount of votes. So you don't really have a right to anything, including abortion. You have an argument for something. You have a position for something. But you can't have a right that the majority can't, by definition, take away. And she said, you know, I hadn't really thought of that before. And I said, well, I'll send you the article. And I did. And later, a few years later, it came up. And she said, yeah, I read it, and I, I, don't, I don't agree. But she doesn't have an answer of her own. See, she can't answer the question. And that's what Leff is saying. If there's nothing to be found that authoritatively answers the questions, well... Uh, we, we, we got a limited circle of choices. One of us, some of us, or all of us. And that is it. Now, law professor Philip Johnson called this the problem of the modern impasse. And let me describe this impasse in Leff's words that close his law review article. And I think you'll see the problem. It's very poignant. To be honest, it's very sad. Here's how Leff concludes his analysis of who can say to another person, you have to do this. You ought to do this. This is the right thing. The person who can answer the playground bully's question says who. Leff writes, looking around the world, it appears that if all men are brothers, the ruling model is Cain and Abel. Neither reason, nor love, nor even terror seems to have worked to make us good. And worse than that, there is no reason why anything should. Only if ethics were something unspeakable by us, in other words, outside of us, could law be unnatural. And what he means there is not natural law, but law that's just pertaining to matter and energy, and therefore unchallengeable. So let me read that sentence again. 
Only if ethics were something unspeakable by us could law be unnatural and therefore unchallengeable. In other words, it would be supernatural law. As things now stand, everything is up for grabs. Nevertheless, he writes, napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. Those who stood up to and died resisting Hitler, Stalin, Amin, and Pol Pot, and General Custer, too, have earned salvation. Those who acquiesced deserve to be damned. There is in the world such a thing as evil altogether now. Says who? God help us. So this is how Johnson described Left's conclusion, what he called the modern impasse. When impeccable logic leads to self-contradiction, there must be a faulty premise. In this case, the premise is that because God is dead, it looks as if we are all we have. Why not, then, re-examine the premise? Why not at least explain why you refuse to re-examine the premise? By not asking that question, Leff, in effect, placed the death of God in the place of God. In his system, the absence of a supernatural evaluator was a premise so far beyond question that it could not be doubted, even when it pointed to a conclusion Leff desperately wanted to escape, even a conclusion he acknowledged to be false. Perhaps that's a good place to stop today's podcast. Next week, we're going to continue to look at this article and evaluate what Leff says. He acknowledges, as we'll see next week, that when you eliminate God from the equation, you're left with only certain possibilities for establishing an ought, a, an ethical, normative law. And we're going to look at some of those, and we're going to look at how he answers them and how man today answers them, and then begin to look at the fact that Christians too often play along with the answers of the godless as if those are the right answers, and they frame their arguments according to the godless systems offered by the humanists. And so I hope you will join me next week as we continue this discussion on God, law, and liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.